So welcome everybody. Um, I hope you can hear me okay, even at the back of this long, thin room. It's a great pleasure to introduce the Aristotelian Society's program of events for 2016 to 17, and most especially to introduce Professor Tim Crane as the incoming president of the Aristotelian Society. I have to say it also feels a little bit odd, and that's mainly because Tim is so extremely well known to most of you here. He was a member of the philosophy department at UCL until 2009. And then he moved only a little way up the road to Cambridge, where he's the Knightbridge Professor of Philosophy and also a fellow, a fellow of Peterhouse. But this um, familiarity doesn't make it any less pleasant to have a chance to say two things in particular about the many things that make Tim such an impressive philosopher. His elegant and influential research, and also his work on behalf of the philosophical community. Tim is, of course, internationally known and respected for his work in the philosophy of mind. But alongside this research, he's done an enormous amount to encourage conversation and collaboration among philosophers. He was the driving force, for example, behind the creation of the Institute of Philosophy, based here in the Senate House, of which he was the founding director. I'm sure I don't need to emphasize what a valuable resource and forum the Institute is for philosophers from all over the country and indeed from all over the world. And during his time at Cambridge too, Tim has continued to bring philosophers together. For example, he's currently the leader of a large research project funded by the Templeton Foundation called New Directions in the Study of Mind. Now, this project is just one manifestation of a program of research in the philosophy of mind that Tim has been pursuing throughout his career. It's resulted in four important books. First of all, he published The Mechanical Mind in 1995, Elements of Mind in 2001, The Objects of Thought, 2013, and then most recently, Aspects of Psychologism. In these studies, Tim has progressively built up a distinctive and wide-ranging account of intentionality and representation. It's an account that stays comparatively close to folk psychology and thus helps to explain us to ourselves in a recognizable sort of way. It is, I think, a humane philosophy of mind that is at once rigorously analytical and also, in a sense, therapeutic. The lecture we're going to hear today is a further contribution to this long-standing project. Tim, please can I invite you to give your presidential address to the Aristotelian Society, which has the tantalizing title the unity of unconsciousness.
thank you. Thank you very much, Sue, for that very kind, generous introduction. Um, I think I've been coming to meetings of the Aristotelian Society for um, maybe 27 years, since 1989 or something. Um, and so it's, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be giving this address. Um, my topic tonight is un the unconscious, and in particular its relationship to the conscious. Um, I've I'm, I'm been very interested in consciousness, but um, consciousness is something that's been explored a lot by philosophers in, in uh, recent philosophy of mind, whereas I think the unconscious is something that's been rather left out of that or taken for granted or a particular picture of it has been presupposed. Um, so I'm going to start off by asking about the relationship between the unconscious and the conscious, the relationship between unconscious mental states and mental, mental phenomena and conscious mental phenomena. Um, in particular, I'm interested in mental representation. Mental representation, uh, for me, is the same thing as intentionality. Some people don't like to equate those two things, but that's the way I'm using the word intentionality to mean mental representation. Um, what's the relationship between unconscious intentionality and conscious intentionality? Um, in particular, I want to address that on two um, sort of sub-questions. One, one is how are mental inten unconscious intentional states themselves connected um, to conscious intentional states? And is the way that the um, unconscious mind represents the world similar or different to the way that the conscious mind represents the world? So the, conscious, the concept of intentionality is my starting point. Um, I understand intentionality in, t in terms of two central ideas. The first idea is the idea of the intentional object, which is what the mind is directed on, what is in the world or not in the world that your mind is directed on when you think about something or when you desire something or when you hope for something. Um, and the second notion is the notion of intentional content, which is the way in which the object of a thought or desire or hope or other intentional state is represented. And so I, I understand the notion of intentional content in terms of a prior notion of intentional object, which is meant to be relatively intuitive. These two notions are all both quite vague, and they can be made more or less sharp depending on um, the purpose. Uh, for those who uh, haven't come across this way of thinking of intentionality, but if you've been educated in the analytic philosophical tradition, uh, this is something in the same ballpark as Frege's distinction between sense and reference, but it's not the same distinction as that. My, my way of thinking owes more uh, to Husserl's way of thinking about intentionality than, than Frege's theory of sense and reference. So this is my more specific question then for today, which is what are the differences between the contents of unconscious intentional states and the contents of conscious intentional states. Uh, by content here I mean, and this is just a, a definition of the word content as, as far as I'm concerned for the purposes of this talk, um, I mean uh, the ways in which the states of mind represent the world. That's what I mean by content. So two states of mind could have the same object, they could be about the same thing, and represent it in different ways. Um, 
Now, some context for those of you interested in contemporary philosophy of mind and philosophy of consciousness um, could be provided by the doctrine known as intentionalism or representationalism. Um, the, the view that's sometimes called strong intentionalism says that the phenomenal, that is to say the conscious character of an intentional state is identical with its representational content. That's a view that has been put forward by many people. Uh, Michael Tai, for example, put this forward. Um, there's an obvious objection to that, that if a conscious and an unconscious mental state can have the same content, then how can the content, how can the consciousness be identical with its having that representational content? This is an objection raised by David Chalmers and others over the last 10 years or so. Um, now, so I, I think that this shows that, that, that there's something wrong with the way of thinking of representational content, which you find in um, the intentionalist picture. Um, if you're not familiar with that discussion, then it doesn't matter. No, nothing, nothing that I'm going to say from now on turns on anything about these um, intentionalist or representationalist views. What I'm interested in, in is rather a, a common underlying assumption in most contemporary philosophy of mind that, um, uh, that concerns itself with intentionality, and that's the assumption that the conscious and unconscious intentional states have exactly the same kind of content. Um, that is to say, they represent the world in exactly the same kind of way, and it's because of this that uh, whatever, whatever accounts for the consciousness of intentionality, uh, it cannot be the representational content. Um, so for example, you can unconsciously believe that Princip assassinated the Archduke. You could believe that, and you could consciously think it too. So there's Princip being led away after the assassination. You, could think, you can now consciously think about that. You can also unconsciously believe it, it seems to be the same sort of thing. Now, my claims today are that this, under, first, that this underlying assumption is false, that is to say, the contents of conscious and unconscious intentional states are a very different kind of thing. There's something very different going on in the representation of the world in unconscious, the unconscious mind, uh, than it, there is going on in the, in the representation of the world by the conscious mind. And I think that recognizing this is the route to a better understanding of the unconscious, and that's the reason for my title. So um, this is the prospectus for the rest of my talk. I'm going to make three points. First, I'm going to say something about the notion of belief, as it's used in, uh, discussed in, um, in recent philosophy of mind. Um, then I'm going to introduce an idea that I call the subject's unconscious worldview. And then the third point I'm going to make is some general speculations about the notion of the unconscious um, in general. And that will be more speculative and uh, um, hopefully leading to further discussion. So I, I start with the notion of belief, and although my concern is with intentionality in general, uh, I will focus on belief because it's most widely discussed and it's a paradigm example of an intentional mental state. The standard picture, as many of you will know, is that beliefs are what are called relations to propositions. That is to say, for each belief, there is a distinct proposition which, to which you are related when you believe it. Um, 
and that a belief state is something that's individuated by its propositional content, by which I understand the people who say this to mean that distinct states are distinguished by the different propositions that give the, their contents. Um, a state here I think of as an instance of a property or a relation, so just as your your weight is a state of you, that's an instance of the, of the property that you instantiate when, when you, given that you weigh something, the, um, or a relation of something causing another thing is an instance of the relation of causation. The, so I think of a, a belief state is an instance of this relation to a proposition or an instance of the property of being so related to that proposition or various different ways of thinking about it, but I'm thinking of states as instances of, of properties or relations. Um, so I said a minute ago that um, you could unconsciously believe that Princip assassinated the Archduke, and you can consciously think this too. Now, some philosophers think that there are conscious and unconscious beliefs. Um, now, the first thing I want to do is to deny this, um, I deny it, I say, rather than argue against it, I'm going to deny it, uh, because this is my presidential address, and I can affirm and deny things in this. Uh, uh, but I have uh, argued for this uh, in some other work. Wittgenstein said in the Philosophical Investigations, believing is not thinking, and then he, he said in brackets that this is a grammatical remark. Uh, I take him to mean by saying it's a grammatical remark that it is a conceptual or necessary truth. Um, I think that meaning has got something to do with the way words are used, and the word grammar is used to refer to syntax and morphology um, and possibly semantics too, but I'd rather say this is a, a conceptual truth that believing is not thinking. What I mean by that is that, there's the, that believing and thinking belong to different metaphysical categories. Um, beliefs, I think, of as unpersisting, unconscious states of mind, and thoughts are rather events or episodes in the stream of consciousness. Um, and I think that um, understanding, appreciating the difference between events and states of mind is um, the key to understanding the difference between believing and thinking. Uh, in this, although he doesn't uh, agree with um, with the, the way I put things, but I'm indebted to the former editor of the Aristotelian Society of Proceedings, Matt Soteriu, uh, in his book, The Mind's Construction. Um, I'm also indebted to Kent Bark, who I, I, wrote, I wrote a paper about this um, distinction between belief and thinking some years ago, and then I discovered that in 1981, Kent Bark had put it extremely well himself, where he said that philosophers sometimes distinguish between occurrent and dispositional senses of believe, but I will use the term believe only for the dispositional sense and reserve the word think for the would-be occurrent sense. I say would-be because I deny that occurrent believing is believing at all, or in my terminology, that thinking that P is either necessary or sufficient for believing that P. Unlike thoughts, Bach says, beliefs are states, not occurrences. Um, this, the central piece of this picture which I, I entirely endorse from Kent Bark here, um, is that um, a belief is a persisting state that persists even through changes in your consciousness, that you continue to believe things even when you're 
asleep, even if you're in a dreamless sleep, even if you're not thinking about what you believe, you continue to believe it. Um, that's why thinking that something is not uh, necessary for believing it. Neither is thinking something sufficient for believing it, because you could think that you believe something even if you don't, for example. Um, and thinking that something could be a momentary, episodic occurrence, which does not, um, uh, which does not um, persist in your mind as the kind of commitment to the truth of something that a belief is. So that, that distinction, I think, is very important, that belief is the unconscious, persistent commitment to the truth of something, whereas thinking is an occurrence in your stream of consciousness. So that, I'm just asserting those claims about um, thinking and believing, and I'll come back to them um, in a minute. I think if you think of beliefs as distinct states, uh, individuated by their contents, distinguished by the different propositions that they're related to, if you think of them in that way, which is the standard contemporary philosophical way of thinking of, of belief, then a natural, I think, of slightly naive question arises, which is this, which is, how many beliefs do you have? Um, now, I don't mean that, I don't mean that there should be, that that should be a question that you want to answer, or that it's, there's any point in going about trying to answer it, but it might be good to have some idea of what kind of ballpark figure we're looking for when we're asking how many beliefs we have. Um, you know, for example, you might think, well, I mean, no one would ever go around counting the hairs on their head, um, assuming that they have some to count. They wouldn't go around assuming it, but we do have a, a ballpark figure. That people not, most people with hair have hairs in the sort of 100,000 range. That's about the number of hairs you have on your head. You don't have millions of hairs on your head. And people with, well, sorry, and people who are, who are uh, relatively, you know, here suit, uh, tend not to, to have more than, say, a few hundred. So the ballpark figure would be around 100,000. So what's the ballpark figure for belief? Um, well, Bob Dylan was once asked by a journalist, how many protest singers are there, Bob? And Bob said, there are either 136 or 142. Um, now, you sort of, you, you can poke fun at the question, and philosophers have been good at poking fun at the question of how many beliefs you have. And so someone might say, well, it's just a silly question. This is a naive question. You know, it's like asking how many atoms are there or something like this. And, um, and then people will say other things like, well, there, there are all these things that you believe, um, but some of them are your sort of core beliefs or your actual beliefs, or the ones you have explicitly represented, and the others are the potential beliefs that you deduce from the ones that you explicitly represent. And that's a very common idea. Um, people allude to this as if this is the obvious answer to the apparently silly question, how many beliefs you have. Um, Daniel Dennett has a wonderful discussion of this in a paper called Brain Writing and Mind Reading from the 1970s, when he says, in addition to all the relatively difficult facts I have mastered, such as that New York is larger than Boston and salt is sodium chloride, there are all the easy ones we tend to overlook. New York is not on the moon or in Venezuela. Salt is not sugar or green or oily. Salt is good on potatoes or eggs. Tweed coats are not made of salt. A grain of salt is smaller than an elephant. 
Surely I can think of more than a thousand things I know or believe about salt. And salt is not one of a hundred, but one of thousands upon thousands of things I can do this with. The objection, of course, Dennett says, seems to point to its own solution. It must be that I potentially believe indefinitely many things, but I generate all but, say, a few hundred thousand by the activity of an extrapolator-deducer mechanism. And then he goes on to have fun with the idea of an extrapolator-deducer mechanism. And this is all against the idea that there are explicit representations for corresponding to each belief in your head. Now, that the, what he was attacking there was Fodor's idea of a language of thought, in part. The idea that for everything you believe, there's some explicit representation that encodes the content of that belief. There's a sentence in your head for each thing that you believe. Um, now, if that view were true, then there should be an answer to the question, how many beliefs do you have? So it shouldn't be a silly question if that view was true. Now, we don't need to discuss the language of thought um, here um, to, 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 to press this question, because we can press the question just by saying, if there are all these individual belief states that you have, then there should be a ballpark figure that we should be, but we have no idea what that ballpark figure might be. Um, so this is my first question to sort of soften you up to other 1980s questions that I'm going to start um, uh, pressing now. Um, those who were around in the 1980s will remember that these questions about the individuation of beliefs and about the coherence of the notion of the belief and the suitability of the notion of belief for science, these were very much um, at the top of the agenda in 1980s philosophy of mind. Uh, in particular, for example, the holism of belief, the fact that although we attribute common belief states to lots of people, their psychological differences are so huge that um, it's not clear that how we can justify saying that they have this distinct state, that you want a holistic conception rather than an atomistic conception of belief. There's also the question of attributing beliefs to children when they can't express what they believe. The, the, a child can believe that, uh, uh, that her daddy is a doctor. Uh, in believing that, she, what does she have to believe about doctors in order for that to really be true of her? Um, there's the question of animal beliefs. You know, I, was in, I was just in, um, in Russell Square with Guy Longworth and we saw a, a greyhound chase a uh, squirrel up the tree. And um, the, uh, the, the greyhound clearly thought the squirrel was up the tree. Well, we, I thought the squirrel was up a tree too. I have a certain idea about what trees are. I think trees are organic, living things. I think those things, they're things that that, that will grow if you plant them, unlike, say, a desk, which will not grow if you plant it. Um, there's a distinction between the organic and the inorganic. When the trees are part of that, some trees are deciduous, some are evergreen, and so on. I have all these beliefs about trees that characterize my conception of a tree. So when I think the dog went up a tree, that's, that's what I'm committing myself to. Sorry, when I think the squirrel went up the tree, that's what I'm committing myself to. When the dog thinks the squirrel went up the tree, what did the dog believe? Now, all these questions were pressed in, in Stitcher's wonderful book called From Folk Psychology to Cognitive Science. Um, Stitch drew the conclusion that the notion of belief is not fit for a proper theory of the mind. Um, I want to draw a different conclusion from this. I want to say maybe we've got the wrong picture when we're thinking of these individual belief states, individual representations, each one corresponding to a distinct uh, propositional content. 
So to illustrate the point about holism, um, with a rather sort of um, example of some contemporary relevance, so supposing there are three people, there's, there's Alice, Bert, and Carol, and they're all looking at the parliament on the banks of the Thames, and they, they each think that that's the British parliament. They believe that that's the British parliament. Um, now, supposing Alice is someone who um, is an expert on the British Constitution, whatever that might be exactly, but they, she's an expert on that. She knows all about how it works. So she really knows what it means for this to be the British Parliament. Bert is someone with a rather different view. He's just visited Scotland, and he saw the Scottish Parliament, so he thinks, well, this must be the English Parliament. Let's suppose he was brought up in the United States. People in the United States often say British when they mean English. So maybe he thinks that's what British means. It means English. So he thinks that's the English Parliament. Sorry, he thinks that's the British Parliament, but by that he means, in our, in our way of thinking, that's the English Parliament. And then... And let's suppose Carol is even more confused and she thinks that the, par that the British Parliament is the seat of the government and she can't distinguish between the Parliament and the government. Nonetheless, they all believe that that's the British Parliament. So they have a common belief among all these psychological differences. And that's the, that is the problem of holism. Or the question of holism, I don't know. It's a problem if you think that that each belief is going to have a distinct individual propositional content, and you think that somehow the propositional content is related to the things you're disposed to go on and say or, or infer on the basis of it. So Alice, Burton, and Carol can all have very different dispositions, dispositions in what they're going to say, what they're going to do in response to things about the, the UK Parliament or the British Parliament. But I want to say surely the common belief description is true of them. So what, what, I want, what I want to try and um, invite you to believe is that um, holism is true. Holism about belief is true. Nonetheless, two people can believe the same proposition. Many people can believe the same proposition. Um, now, the solution to this, of this, this question, or the way to resolve the, the tension between holism and the sameness of the proposition is... Um, I, I think, to understand the relationship between belief and the ascription of belief in, in a different kind of way from the way that the tradition has been understanding it. I think we should think of the propositions that people are related to as models of belief states. Um, a model, here by a model, I mean a model in the sense that the philosophy of science has discussed models in recent decades. So I don't mean a model in the sense of um, task in semantics or model theory. I don't mean it in that sense. I mean it in the sense of, um, um, in the sense that the, um, for example, the, the solar system or the image of the solar system is used as a model of the atom by Rutherford. A model is something that simplifies and idealizes to draw attention to certain features of the system under investigation. So there's the system. It's the, the believer. And you indicate or you model some aspect of their belief by relating them to a proposition. You use a proposition or you express a sentence which expresses a proposition which picks out some feature of their, their belief. Um, so that's the sense in which I mean model. 
It's a model in the sense that M Michael Weisberg describes it as an indirect theoretical investigation of a real-world phenomenon like that, for example. That, that's a model. That's not what the atom looks like. It's rather that's something that enables you to um, isolate certain features of, uh, of the atom to explain its behavior. You explain the behavior of something by comparing it to something which is less complex. That's the that's what modeling is. Um, so I say what's going on in the, um, in the case of holism is that you're modeling someone's belief state by relating them to a proposition. And the proposition may be conceived in different semantic ways. It could be conceived of as a, as a proposition as Russell conceived of it or as Frege conceived of it or as a set of possible worlds. You can use any of these things to pick out different aspects of the, the belief state. So it's a consequence of the way I'm thinking of it that what David Chalmers calls content pluralism is true of belief, that there isn't just one proposition that models someone's belief state. The same belief state can be modeled by many different propositions for different purposes. Um, so the question of whether people believe sets of possible worlds or whether they believe Russellian propositions uh, is not a real question. Um, because that's assuming there is something that they're related to, and that's, as it were, a fact of nature that we have to find out about. What there is, is their psychological organization, which you're, which you're describing in certain ways by relating them to these invented abstract objects. So they're good for, some abstract objects are good for certain kind of things, and some abstract objects are good for other kind of things. So that just raises the question of what the real-world phenomenon which is modeled by belief ascriptions. So what is it that you're modeling if, um, by using these propositions to model aspects of belief? Broadly speaking, what is the psychological reality? What is the unconscious psychological reality that you're picking out with these propositions? Um, this is where I want to introduce a, um, a made-up word, or rather I'm co-opting a word which is used in, in, uh, in ordinary language to, to describe the subject's belief system. I call this the subject's worldview. So what I want to oppose is the idea of the idea that there are countable individual beliefs um, with the idea that there is just what we might call the subject's entire unconscious doxastic orientation towards the world. I'm only concentrating on belief here, but you could say I, I would like to say similar things about motivational systems, the imagination, and so on. Um, but I'm just going to uh, concentrate on belief. That's what I call the subject's worldview. By the subject's worldview, I mean the uh, I mean to to um, pick up on the th idea that. Um, what belief is, is an attempt to get the world right, to get a picture of the world which is correct. But the picture that we actually get in our unconscious mind is often incomplete, indeterminate, I want to say, unspecific, contradictory, confused, and all, in all sorts of other ways, very unlike the picture of sentences in the language of thought, which um, uh, even though I think many people are not 
committed to the picture of sentences in the language of thought, I think they're committed to something like it, which is the idea that beliefs are relations, individual belief states are relations to propositions. Um, I'd like to return to, to another example of Dennett's here, who uh, in, in the same, that wonderful paper that I uh, referred to earlier on of um, brain writing and mind reading, um, where he has this nice example of Sam, the reputable art critic who extols, buys, and promotes mediocre paintings by his son. Uh, supposing you advance two hypotheses. He says, um, either Sam does not believe the paintings are any good, but out of loyalty and love, he does this to help his son, or Sam's love for his son has actually blinded him to the faults of the paintings, and he actually, and he actually believes that they are good. Um, this is a very poignant story, I think. I, whichever way you, you, you take it, either you know, Sam is, uh, is deceiving himself, uh, or he's deceiving the world about what he really thinks. Um, and Dennett um, has a, dis discusses this in some detail where he says, well, even if you had a neurocryptographer who could I find the sentence in, in Sam's belief box that said, you know, I believe my son was a great artist, you know, we still wouldn't know until we'd interpreted it to whether Sam was actually deceiving himself when he said this. What I, the, the thing that this example brings out, I think, is that um, it's intelligible to us that there may actually be no fact of the matter about what Sam thinks about his son's painting. It may be that the psychological facts and his, and his dispositions in relation to his son are so complex that, um, we, that we couldn't actually identify you know, one particular state, which is his belief that um, his son is a great artist. Um, I think this point was really it was beautifully put by Stuart Hampshire um, when he said that, that a man may think that he believes that P, while his behavior can only be explained by the hypothesis that he believes not P. Perhaps the confusion in his mind cannot be conveyed by any simple account of what he believes. Perhaps only a reproduction of the complexity and confusion will be accurate. Now, I think this is true even if you think, which I do, that beliefs are dispositions to behave and to speak and so on. The dispositions might be so complex that only a description of all the ways they would manifest themselves would be totally accurate to the situation. Of course, that's a description we couldn't give. Um, so this is why I, I think of this as confusion all the way down. It's not just that in some places you will have a contradictory belief, as it were, in some part of your mind, and uh, sorry, a belief in some part of your mind which contradicts a belief in another part of your mind. It's just that your whole mind may be, at bottom, um, contain these, these, these confusions, which you don't really know how to separate out into different states. So I'm proposing my, my, my um, picture of a, of a worldview, where the worldview is the unconscious um, doxastic orientation towards the world. Um, as I'm proposing that as a more realistic picture of the psychological reality um, than the standard picture of individual belief states. And then the modeling claim is, explains why we're inclined to attribute these unrealistic features to beliefs. Um, so why we might, you know, we might think, well, if someone believes that, then really they ought to believe this other thing there. And we're modeling their uh, claim according to some norm of, uh, as it may be, logic. Um, 
In fact, they don't. Um, we hope they do. We hope they will believe it if it's pointed out to them. Whether or not they do depends on the complexity of their, their psychological organization. So belief attribution is an idealization. It's a simplification. Um, belief attribution is not the path to understanding the psychological reality of belief. The belief attribution doesn't, individual belief attributions do not correspond to individual belief states. Rather, what there is, is the worldview and the ascribers' um, um, attempts to model the worldview using propositions. So that, very briefly, is the, is the sketch of the positive picture of unconscious belief that I want to put forward. So how does this relate to conscious thought? Well, this is an incredibly complicated topic. What I want to say about conscious thought, in, in essence, is that a conscious thought is not a belief. I've, I said that earlier on. Conscious thought is an episode in your stream of consciousness. Uh, it can be a case of bringing what you believe to mind. So you can bring what you believe to mind in thinking it. Um, you can also bring other things to mind other than your conscious thought, but I'm just thinking of the thoughts that you bring to mind when you bring to mind what you believe, and you bring to consciousness what you believe. Um, but bringing what you believe to consciousness is a huge subject matter that covers many things, all of which have been discussed in, in recent um, philosophy, but often under separate headings. But it seems to me that there's something in common between these things. Uh, one of them, for example, is what Ned Block calls access consciousness. Uh, another is the idea of judgment, where that's either judgment about ma making up your mind about some subject on which you're undecided, or judgment in the sense of um, judging what you already believe. Um, another falls under the heading of self-knowledge, where people would talk about uh, how you know what you believe yourself. Um, and another topic here is, is psychotherapy, and in particular the therapy of psychoanalysis, which is a way of bringing things that in some sense you believe to consciousness. And there are other phenomena here too. So I think a full understanding of this situation, of the relationship between conscious thought and unconscious belief and other mental representation would need to uh, understand all these different phenomena. Here I just want to focus on the topic of self-knowledge. Um, now, self-knowledge is, um, in this context, unfortunately, is not knowledge of yourself. Um, self-knowledge is used in, in recent discussion to refer to um, knowledge of things that you believe, and sim the most simple, trivial things like your current belief that you are now wearing socks. How do you know that you believe that you are now wearing socks? These are the examples that we get to. So. We start off with know thyself in, and, um, uh, and the project of self-discovery, self-identification, the great challenge of philosophy, and we end up with the question, how do you know that you now believe you're wearing socks? So this very, it's a very good example of something that, that happens in philosophy, that you, philosophy t takes a question which is interesting and important and it turns it into a question which is uninteresting and unimportant, but it keeps the words the same. So everyone thinks they're going to come to, to, to study self-knowledge and they will actually learn about you know, how, they can, how, they, how they know what will make them happy. But in fact, they learn about how 
externalist theories of content are compatible with the proposition that I believe that this is water. Right, so so um, there's a warning, I think, for all of us here. Um, however, I want to just, uh, well, that's why I put self-knowledge in these quotation marks. Um, what, what I'm talking about, actually, is finding out what you believe. Now, I think if you take uh, perhaps a, a, a caricature version of the view that I'm attacking, that there are individual belief states, and you have some fixed number of them because they, they, the states of your doxastic system, um, if you take that, that, that approach, then there ought to be a sharp distinction between finding out what you believe and making up your mind. These ought to be different things. Finding out what you believe is a matter of finding out what's in there, what's in your belief box, as Fodor <coughs> called it. Um, whereas making up your mind is when you're undecided and you come to a judgment about something that you, um, um, that you didn't have a view about before. Now, one way, I suppose, to put in a, in a, in a, in a short sentence the, the approach that I'm trying to recommend here is that there isn't a sharp distinction between these things. That finding out what you believe is often a case of making up your mind. Often a case when you realize, when you're reflecting, either by simple introspection, whatever that may be exactly, or uh, when, when you're in psychotherapy, or when you're just talking to someone else, or when you're just um, learning something about the world. In all these cases, um, you can actually be as much creating what you believe as finding out what it is that you already believe. So, so by saying there's no sharp distinction, I don't mean there aren't clear cases where you are just finding out what you already, already know. Um, and I don't mean that there aren't clear cases where you're, where you're inventing things or you're creating something new. I mean that there's a huge number of cases in the middle. And for that, re that, and that's, that fact has to be brought into a proper account of self-knowledge and the relationship between conscious thought and the worldview. Consciousness, I say, can what make what you believe more explicit and determinate. The easiest way to see this is when you put your belief into words. And this is the nice truth behind the saying attributed variously to E.M. Forster and Graham Wallace that um, how can I tell what I think till I see what I say? Um, and I think this is actually, it should be a common experience for philosophers. Sometimes you're trying to lecture on something and you, and you haven't got the right words and the words fall into place and you feel your thought falling into place as that happens. Um, as Michael Dummett said about another kind of case, the facts spring up as you probe. It's not like the facts are already out there and you're just finding words to pick uh, for them. That's what Dennett described as the hard edge of determinacy that our verbal output substitutes for the fuzziness of, of our convictions. I think a really, another really nice way of putting it. Uh, again, he's talking about verbal output there, but I'm not restricting um, your conscious judgments, just your verbal outputs. It's just those are the clearest cases. So that's the picture that I want to um, recommend to you the unconscious worldview with our judgments that, that we make about our, un, our, our unconscious beliefs um, being in some way a creative activity. The, um, that, that's, so to speak, the first person case. And when I was talking about modeling, that was the 
third-person case, but in a sense, you model your own beliefs too, or you interpret them. So in the last 10 minutes of my talk, I want to um, say something about how this relates to the unconscious in general. Um, and this is more speculative, or perhaps I should say even more speculative than the previous section. <coughs> so how does what I've said about the conscious and the unconscious relate to the general phenomenon of the unconscious? Um, I suppose one prior question is whether there is such a thing as the general phenomenon of the unconscious. I mean, the unconscious is talked about in common sense psychology. I think common sense psychology is committed to unconscious mental states. Um, also in cognitive science and psychology and neuroscience, and also in psychoanalysis. Is there a common notion of the unconscious in, in between all these disciplines or across all these disciplines or investigations? Uh, or are they just talking about very different things? Um, it's often assumed that they are talking about very different things. I want to suggest that there is a common notion that we can pick out here. I think it's worth um, drawing attention to the fact that when people in philosophy and in psychology uh, talk about um, unconscious intentionality, uh, they often pay a certain kind of homage or uh, lip service to Freud. Um, here are a couple of examples. You can find hundreds and hundreds of examples across the literature. I don't know if you can see that at the back. I'm sorry if, if not, but it's... Um, Fodor says, for example, that it used to be universally taken for granted that the problem about consciousness and the problem about intentionality are intrinsically linked. Uh, that thought is ipso facto conscious and that consciousness is ipso facto consciousness of some intentional object. Freud, he says, changed all that. Then many years later, here's Peter Carruthers in the Stanford Encyclopedia, who says almost everyone now accepts, for example, post-Freud, that beliefs and desires can be activated unconsciously. Um, and here's Timothy Wilson in his this nice book, Strangers to Ourselves, where he describes um, our knowledge of our own unconscious and a lack of knowledge of our own unconscious influences. Um, the idea that a large portion of the human mind is unconscious is not new and was Freud's greatest insight, he says. Um, so it looks like people acknowledge Freud as someone who had something to do with persuading philosophy that... Un that um, that the unconscious was a thing. On the other hand, here's some nice evidence from a forthcoming paper by um, Koti Farkosh, uh, where she points out that there are around 1,500 entries in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which could be widely, Stanford Encyclopedia could be taken as the distillation of the wisdom of, of our age, um, if you like. Um, 92 of these entries, mostly on continental feminist philosophy, refer to Freud, whereas, for example, Hilary Putnam is mentioned 230 times. The SCP entry on the philosophy of psychiatry does not contain a single reference to Freud's work. The term psychoanalysis is mentioned in 76 documents. In contrast, cognitive science occurs in 175 documents. Artificial intelligence in 119 documents, quantum mechanics in 138 documents. Um, so, and actually the same is true in psychology. I think it's uh, generalizing hugely. I think Freud has, had, uh, has very little influence on contemporary cognitive psychology. Um, Wilson says as much himself. When he's talking about the, the unconscious, what he calls the adaptive unconscious, he's, he's, he says it's something very different from the psychoanalytic unconscious. 
Um, so maybe this, all this referring to Freud is really just a bit of um, a sort of just a flourish so to in our, enable you to distinguish between unconscious intentionality and, and consciousness or something, and you refer to Freud to give your work a certain patina of um, something, scholarship or culture or something like that. Um, but I think we can tell a slightly different story. Whether or not that's true of the people I mentioned, we can tell a slightly different story which has some philosophical significance. Um, if we ask ourselves the question, well, why are these people crediting Freud? We should say, well, what, are, what, what should they actually credit Freud with? What is Freud's great discovery supposed to have been? Um, well, it's, it's a well-known fact, and uh, something we should all, everyone in this room knows, I'm sure, that Freud did not discover the unconscious. Um, in philosophy, the unconscious has been a familiar phenomenon, I would say, at least since Plato, with, where what the slave boy knew in the Mino dialogue was something that he unconsciously represented. That the, the coherence or intelligibility of unconscious knowledge and therefore representation was, is implicit in that whole story. Um, Leibniz is someone who had a much more theoretical conception of the unconscious itself because Leibniz had the idea of perception. Perception is not vision or hearing or perception as, as, as uh, we describe it today. Perception is something more like intentionality, something more like that. Um, but uh, perceptions could be little. We could have these petite perceptions, which, are, uh, which represent things to the monad or the soul or the substance, even if they're not uh, taken under consciousness. Um, from a more psychological perspective, of course, there was Helmholtz's idea of unconscious inference. And Helmholtz thought you had to have inferences going on in, uh, in the unconscious to explain how, how perception works. Um, inference was meant in the same sense that it was meant in, uh, in use in the conscious or, or, or in logic. Um, and there's some other figures here from the history of 19th century psychology who were um, appealed to ideas of unconsciousness. So Freud did not discover the unconscious, but Freud introduced something, I think, which is um, a particular conception of how, of how the unconscious works. And here I want to distinguish two conceptions of the unconscious, one of which we could call Leibnizian, broadly speaking, and the other which is Freudian. On the Leibnizian conception, sorry, the, uh, the unconscious is essentially the same kind of thing as the conscious. You've just got this one mode of mental operation, which is perception, and then consciousness comes with what he called apperception, which was taking the perception under some other representation. So that is there, you have, so to speak, the piling up of small perceptions gives you consciousness. It's an incredibly crude way of putting it, but that's the, there's something right about that picture. <laughs> On Freud's view, the unconscious was something which had very different principles and operated according to very different um, rules, as Volheim says in his book on Freud. Um, for example, the idea of repression, the idea that things that happen to you may be a very long time ago, things that you no longer remember. There are things that are repressed in your mind, and, and the unconscious keeps them repressed. The unconscious is in opposition to consciousness. Consciousness denies that these things are in your mind, and these things only emerge in very specific contexts, like in dreams or in the therapeutic situation. 
Now, in this, I have to say, I'm indebted to a recent book by Paul Katsafanas called The Nietzschean Self, where he has a very interesting discussion of these two ways of thinking of the, the unconscious. Um, and if that's right, if that's the right way of thinking of um, this distinction in the history of our thinking about the mind um, between these two ways of thinking, if, that's the right, right, if that distinction is, is correct, roughly speaking, then we can see that Freud's contribution was not to discover the unconscious as such, but to discover the unconscious as something with its own rules or principles. To discover this, this distinct idea that the way the unconscious mind represents the world is not the same kind of phenomenon as the way the conscious mind represents the world. So in that respect, despite the fact that no one ever discusses Freud or that analytic philosophy has taken almost nothing from Freud, the, uh, well actually, sorry, because of that fact maybe, the orthodox conception of the propositional attitudes and like belief particularly is more Leibnizian than it is Freudian, uh, I would say. And the worldview conception that I want to oppose to this um, is... Um, is, is more, as I would say, more like the Freudian conception, that the principles on which the unconscious operates um, and what goes on when unconscious states are ascribed um, is uh, something which is very different to what's going on when you experience something consciously. The I want to say that the same mixture of um, interpretation, creation, and discovery is found in the, in the unconscious, in, in, the, in the discovery of the unconscious, or the recovery of the unconscious, as explored by psychoanalysis, common sense psychology, and I would, and I would also say cognitive science, although I haven't um, I've said almost nothing about that. I've said something about it in some other work. So the take-home message of this paper is that, that the unconscious, there is a, a unified notion of the unconscious. Um, it's on the Freudian side of things rather than the Leibnizian side. When things come to consciousness, we have a very different phenomenon. The standard picture of the propositional attitudes um, can't, is, is opposed to that. The standard picture says the representation of the world in a conscious state as in an unconscious state it's fundamentally the same kind of thing. So whatever consciousness involves, it must be something else. Um, and that's the position I've been trying to um, oppose in this lecture. So these are my um, very brief conclusions. Then I, I want to say that belief ascription, what's going on in belief ascription, is using a proposition to model an aspect of psychological reality. Um, my second point is that the relevant psychological reality is what I'm calling the subject's unconscious worldview. And then my title is explained by the fact that I think the worldview theory of the unconscious suggests a more general, unified conception of the unconscious um, than um, is suggested by the current understanding of the relationship between common sense psychology, cognitive science, and whatever truth there might be in psychoanalysis. So, thank you very much.